everybody. Today we're going to be speaking with Pia Hellman. She's going to share with us how to get the most out of a conference and what kind of events to attend in order to get the most return on investment. She's also going to speak about the research role that they made in their sales process, which is helping their SDR teams. And join us next week when we speak with Seth List. He's going to be sharing with us how they get 40 qualified meetings per rep per quarter in outbound. We have a really fantastic interview today with Pia, so I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Great. Let's start with uh, how you got into sales. Um, so this is a story I've told so many times. Uh, it was by accident entirely. Um, I was an art history major in college. I thought that I wanted to go into auction houses or something along those lines. And the obvious path to me uh, seemed to be first entering into a marketing or PR role. Um, my father was a, a VP of marketing many times over. So I, I tended to think more highly of marketing when I was growing up. The, the dinnertime conversation revolved around the merits of marketing. So when it came to graduating, I graduated in the summer of 2011, the job market was not ideal, and I had not uh, lined up a job at that point. So moved back home to the New England area and started looking for jobs. The first job that I landed was actually a sales role selling marketing and PR software, which I thought was a, a perfect foray if I couldn't actually get the job in marketing or PR to start off with. Why not sell to those roles and understand what made them tick uh, to start off with? Um, I've been selling ever since. <laughs> and what does your father think about you being in sales now? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think he respects sales more these days, um, but it was certainly a tough conversation for starters. So is a, a love-hate relationship between sales and, and marketing. It certainly is. Great. All right. So let's uh, talk a little bit about your, your history. Uh, mm -hmm. You were the director of sales at a company called Attend, um, which I'm sure you could explain it better, but helps companies get the most out of uh, conferences and events. And I really want to dive in deep about that. Can you tell me a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Attend was a Series A startup uh, originally selling on the premise that name tags suck. Everybody hates name tags. Um, so we, we got a lot of early traction with nonprofits and higher ed who have a lot of events, development events, um, and they hated the concept of 
printing name tags in advance when, of course, somebody inevitably shows up that they weren't expecting, somebody's name is spelled incorrectly, et cetera. Um, we pivoted the company, recognizing that there is more of a market opportunity to track ROI on events. So you've got field marketers, CMOs who always want to know the value of the event to their company. You pour thousands and thousands of dollars into trade shows, conferences, and these small events for salespeople. And it's very difficult to measure that. Um, so the company kind of pivoted into um, SaaS business um, where they were capturing engagement at events um, and allowing, you know, the field marketers to then report up what they believed the ROI was based on the value of the opportunities, um, syncing, of course, with things like Salesforce, um, Marketo, Eloqua, Pardot, et cetera, so that you could have this central repository for events and understand the value of each event to the company when it came to revenue, which is ultimately what marketers uh, and salespeople, for that matter, are trying to drive. Absolutely. All right. And while you're experienced there, what were some of the biggest mistakes that companies were making at events that they could change? I think one of the biggest ones is thinking of trade shows and conferences as revenue drivers. Um, and I'll caveat that. So. Trade shows and conferences at this point for so many companies, especially startups, are really about brand equity. It's table stakes to be at these big conferences. I'm even headed out to Black Hat, um, which is a security conference next week, uh, and sort of experience some, some experiencing some of this in-house uh, right now. But the concept that those are the kinds of events where you're going to get a massive amount of ROI back, I, I think is uh, a little naive. Instead, um, look at those events and think of them as um, you know the early stages for prospects to stop by, learn a little bit more about who you are, or alternately, if you are going to involve salespeople, have them schedule meetings for the middle and the, the bottom of their uh, funnel so that they're actually progressing deals. I think generally speaking, that's sort of the, the miss, um, uh, the misappropriation for events. It's really a, a middle of the funnel and bottom of the funnel activity, marketing activity, depending on the type of event. So what we found instead is that these small hyper-targeted events, so you think of field marketing as sort of this growing role uh, that really supports salespeople. There's interesting content. It's a smaller opportunity for somebody like an account exec uh, to go and meet with their prospects face-to-face -face and also connect them with existing customers, people who are in a similar position trying to make a decision around whether or not to purchase something, and giving them that forum in which they can do that, which isn't as um, you know far along in the, the buyer's journey necessarily as engaging with a sales rep, but does allow them to answer some of those questions. Those are, are your higher value activities, and we found that those actually were um, resulting in greater ROI for companies than the hundreds of thousands of dollars that you're spending to have your name up at a trade show 
which is really either just a ton of top of the funnel people who are very early in their buyer's journey, if in a buyer's journey at all. And alternately, you know, those kind of face-to-face meetings to really push a deal over the edge, which could have happened in spite of the trade show or conference. So what you're saying is uh, you might not even need a booth at the conference. You just need to attend so that you could meet the prospects that you're working on uh, face-to-face. Yeah. So some of my favorite startups, you know, uh, you look at them, they're getting scrappy. They're the ones handing out cocktail napkins that direct you to the bar across the street. I think there's a lot of noise that happens in some of these bigger conferences. And there's sort of this mentality that you have to be there. But if you can get creative and go a little guerrilla marketing on it instead uh, and drive people outside of the trade show where they're sort of mindlessly wandering through booths, whether or not they're actually buying or in a buying mode um, allows you to have those high quality conversations that result in revenue. Interesting. Uh, I've, I've been to a lot of conferences myself and I also feel like, you know, it's, it's good for long-term brand recognition uh, or to meet people face to face, but nothing like uh, short term. It's very rare that you get and close a deal right away. Yeah, absolutely. Now, on the flip side, those smaller targeted events, uh, you do see a lot of that. So something to consider for sure. Well, that that led me to my next question is what is the best kind of event to attend? To attend um, from what perspective, from a sales perspective or? Absolutely. Sales. Um, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, so if I were the company uh, and I were a salesperson, let's say theoretically, I would want to have a, um, let's say, 80, 60 to, to 80 person event that is focused around something um, that offers thought leadership or kind of a progressive thought. Uh, whether that's a panel or a speaker that the community is excited about with a good mix of my existing customers who can be advocates for me, um, members of my team, whether that's product, you know, CEO or, or C-level so that people feel comfortable and confident with the company itself. And then a mix of prospects who may be interested in whatever content is being delivered so that the prospect feels like they're getting something I am in a non-threatening way, uh, able to have really productive conversations with both prospects and customers. And there's sort of that organic conversation that happens between prospects and customers as well around whatever's being presented or, or the topic um, that we're presenting on. So how do you find these, uh, these, uh, goal, these perfect uh, seminars or events? I think you create them. Um, so work closely with your marketing team and, and if there's a topic that you feel would resonate with your buyer, then, then you have to feel enabled to create them. Um, the nice thing is that they tend to be far less expensive than a sponsorship. So the C-suite is, uh, more open to those kinds of events. I, I think again, that's sort of why there's this surge of the concept of field marketing, um, an event uh, specialist set a lot of the, the modern SaaS companies is because there is this drive from sales to create an organic 
event uh, where people can can speak to one another, learn more without feeling like they're having the product shoved down their throat. Yeah, needs to be more natural. Exactly. All right. Um, what are some small, quick tips that could be implemented uh, if somebody is at a larger event, uh, a salesperson is at a larger event that will make the biggest impact? So I'm headed out to, to Black Hat, as I mentioned, next week. I think the, the most important thing is recognize that you may not be able to schedule those meetings weeks in advance because people tend to only know their schedules in the last you know couple of days before they head out there. And of course, it's always changing. So the best thing is to exchange cell phone numbers and understand the mode of communication that's going to be most effective for your prospect. So found that texting is super effective in terms of trying to meet somebody outside of the booth, for example. Um, setting up meetings outside of the booth is also really important because somebody swinging by the booth may be distracted, um, their timing may be off. So if you can schedule for high quality prospects, uh, you know, uh, drinks, dinner, something like that, um, much easier to to keep their attention that way uh, than at a booth. Um, outside of that, it's really just understanding and knowing your pipeline. Where is your highest value accounts or where are your highest value accounts that would make the greatest impact for you to meet with? Uh, and hone in on those and try to leverage whatever you can to get those meetings because those are the face-to-face -face meetings that you should be prioritizing. Uh, somebody once told me, schedule your priorities as opposed to prioritizing your schedule. So make sure that um, you've got the, the right people are your priorities uh, instead of just kind of getting the top of the funnel movement. I think that goes with the the eighty twenty rule. Spend spend eighty percent of your time on the top twenty percent of your funnel. One hundred percent. All right, great. So let's move forward in in your career to where you are now, uh, Threat Stack, mm -hmm. and you're now leading a team of. Uh, LinkedIn says it's about forty two. Is that correct? Um, that might be a little higher than it actually is, but it, fairly close to that, right around uh, 37, I think, is the team right now. Okay. And where were you guys uh, at about two years ago when you first started there? So when I first started, there were about 10 of us total. Um, and we have obviously grown dramatically since then. Right now, we have 14 closers uh, and about 18 BDRs and ADRs. How did you uh, know how, when to start to scale that team from, from the 10 or so up to now 37 or so? So as a quickly growing SaaS business, um, it's sort of uh, a chicken and the egg situation, I think, oftentimes. Um, we definitely have the velocity and the, the number of accounts, um, you know, in our database who are engaged and interested to merit that number of reps. Um, but you're also looking to hit that golden number in terms of growth to be more attractive to investors. So, um, you know, it was, a, it was a combination of volume on the one side of interest and then on the other side, 
looking to accomplish the goals that had been set out for us. And how did you know, though, what, what those numbers would look like? Um, a lot of capacity planning. So looking both from the top down and the bottom up in terms of production, in terms of um, you know how many meetings are being scheduled on a, on a weekly basis, and even actually further than that, how many activities are accomplished uh, at any given time. Um, and then also taking the, the goal for the year and working backwards to understand exactly how many reps we need to accomplish those goals. All right. And so tell me what the difference between your BDRs and your account uh, development representatives are as far as what their focus is. Yeah. So this is something that's entirely new to the company. It is actually something that we had been speaking about earlier this year uh, and decided to, to kind of go all in on. Um, an account development rep is somebody who is brand new to sales. Um, so we have very young reps, generally speaking, but uh, we tend to hire right out of college or people who are making career switches. And we have what we call a draft, draft and develop program. So uh, the reps that come in as account development reps or business development reps will then grow into account development reps and hopefully continue their career at ThreatStack. Um, an account development rep is responsible for understanding what is going on in a territory and building out what they feel are the highest quality accounts within the territory. So finding the triggers like new job openings or new hires, um, recent funding, recent news in terms of security, or somebody's speaking in the press about something that's relevant to what we do. Um, so they'll build out those accounts, add the right contacts, and they flip that account then over to the business development rep. Business development rep, as I'm sure most people are familiar, is responsible for the actual outreach. So they're the ones who are emailing, calling, um, you know, social outreach uh, to their prospects to try to set up meetings for their ISRs, what we call them internally at ThreatSec, inside sales rep, uh, who then take the meetings to close. Uh, it's really interesting. So you've typically a company is has the two stages, BDR or SDR and account executive. So you've added a step like a research uh, team uh, before the BDR gets to it. Yeah, exactly. And how long have you been doing this? We've been doing it for a quarter and a half now. So it's still in its early stages, but definitely seeing uh, initial success from it. What kind of success? Um, so what we've really seen is that by specializing those roles, the BDR is able to reach out more confidently to start off with. Um, they also can increase the number of activity. As we know, number numbers uh, or sales is a numbers game. Um, so having them spend less time on the actual prospecting and having that sort of queued up for them so that they're spending more time actually selling and honing their sales skills to get to the meeting and the next call. Um, we think is really important. The ADR role is really meant to be, you know, just a couple of months. So getting your feet wet and understanding exactly what a good prospect looks like before you're actually in the role where you're reaching out to somebody allows you again to, to hone that skill um, in each of those specialized roles. 
So it's a te- it's a temporary placeholder for new employees or BDRs. Essentially, I think of it as a um, you know most companies look at the ramp for BDRs um, anywhere from three to six months. I think the the most recent research alludes to, and this allows us to have uh, productivity in terms of they're learning a complex product in a new industry. Um, and also what our ideal customer profile looks like so that by the time they are fully ramped, they're ready to hit the phone or ready to get out there and engage with prospects and be very confident that the people that they're reaching out to and the message that they're giving to those people uh, resonates. Okay. So what happens when all these reps uh, finish this cycle and move into BDRs? Do you hire a new group of ADRs? Yep, that's exactly what happens. So sort of a, a rotation there. Wow, that's, uh, that's really great. So you're saying that their rotation is about three to six months. Exactly. So three to six months in an account development role um, and then in a BDR role for anywhere from 12 to, to 18 months. And then you're moving into a closing role shortly after. That's a really uh, great addition and way to make a funnel for a, a sales career. Yeah. Okay. And how are you compensating them? Uh, do they Do they get compensation or is it just a flat pay? They're compensated very similarly to the way a BDR is. Um, They are uh, comped on the the number of meetings, essentially, that are booked, quality meetings that are booked, qualified meetings, excuse me, that are booked. So it's not purely on the fact that the meeting is booked, but is this um, quality quality meeting that the ISR will ultimately qualify and accept into their pipeline. Wow, very interesting. This is the first time I've, I've heard of this. Where did you find this idea from? So interestingly enough, uh, my VP of sales is uh, subscribed to a Google Hangout, I think, for sales leaders. And he had forwarded this string to us um, about the ADR role kind of growing. I think, I think of Boston as this hub for an inside sales model that's used amongst a lot of uh, software companies in the area. Um, And it was the first time that I'd heard of it as well. So we had a conversation about it. And to be totally honest, I was a little averse to the idea at first. Um, But, you know, in the interest of experimenting, um, because we are a software company, we can be more agile around these things and giving our a reps an opportunity to grow and understand what an ideal customer looks like before actually starting the outreach. We thought uh, there's no better time to do it than now. Um, so again, still sort of an experiment in that we're just, you know, five months in, um, but something that I'm, I'm very curious to, to continue. Wow, great. All right. So you said that you guys tend to hire uh, with no experience uh, in sales anyways. Um, why is that? You know, I think a little bit of it is my own personal bias. Um, but I'd say that's likely shared by, uh, my VP as well. I think the most important thing in sales is your just natural drive or hunger, which can't be taught. So it's not something that, um, you necessarily can, can teach, 
But uh, the secondary component to that is this concept of coachability. So when we're looking for people, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter what you've done for the years that passed. Um, you know, we've hired an accountant from the MBTA. We hired a former golf pro. Um, and then, of course, uh, recent graduates. It's less important what you've done in terms of your sales experience to us and more important around, are you willing to learn? Do you want to succeed? And will you listen to and apply feedback from people who've been doing this for longer than you've been doing it? Um, so that's what we look for instead of the, the years of experience. The other thing that I tend to find is that um, people who've been doing it before often have their habits, which can be good or bad. Um, you know, certainly would love an experienced rep with great habits who wants to come into a new company and teach the rest of the team. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's making sure that they, they want to succeed. That hunger, especially at a startup, I think is so important. So how are you finding that uh, during the interview process? Um, so a series of questions, you know, I, I think it's something that I tend to personally be very upfront with. Um, I ask for, since salespeople tend to be good storytellers, a story around both the hunger component as well as the coachability component. Um, and also just how they approach an interview. Is it somebody who is persistent in their outreach? Uh, do they thank, send a thank you email? I know it's so silly, but there's so many people who don't send a thank you email after they've, they've spoken with you. Um, are they looking for additional guidance on what the, the next steps look like? Do they kind of fight or battle for where they're, they're standing in the interview process? Um, so some of those kind of simple things I try to include in the interview process to better vet it out. Yeah. The, the thank you letter, is that a no-go if they don't send you one? It's not a no-go, um, but it definitely is something that I've become hyper aware of recently. I think uh, myself included, it's just, you know, the time and the, the day gets away from you, but it's so uncommon that I receive a thank you after an interview at this point that those people who do really stand out to me. Good. So any of the salespeople listening, that's a, that's a key contributor to getting uh, jobs. I, I think most sales uh, leaders will appreciate a thank you letter. Yeah, absolutely. Especially a uh, personalized one to everybody that you're meeting with an interview process. It, it's not, again, if you don't have to do it, but if you can personalize something from the conversation to each instead of the blanket thank you to the three to five people you may have met with, it goes a long way. Yeah. All right. So because you have this kind of funnel of uh, sales profession, uh, ADR to BDR to account executive, are you ever hiring uh, just straight account executives or do you want to put everybody through that funnel? So it's been a conscious decision from leadership down to continue with the funnel. Um, you know, we have hired externally sparingly, um, you know, when we, when we need to, but I would say at this point, we're committed to draft and develop. And I think that's something that's mimicked across the entire company, which is really interesting. It started in sales. Uh, we're seeing more of it all, um, 
throughout the rest of the company. So great example actually is on our security team. Um, I know that we have started to hire more junior people uh, who can learn and sort of grow into these roles. My caveat there again is I think sort of the management training of those people or, or training in general of those people is that much more important uh, to enable and train as you bring somebody junior on. But it does give a really good runway in terms of their career progression uh, within the company and give you the opportunity to sort of mold um, people into the types of reps or the type of security professionals uh, that are going to be successful at that company. I'm sure it also has a, a good effect on the longevity of the employees as well, both for the for the new people coming in and for the people that are already in the leadership. Yeah, it absolutely does, and I think that's a, a really big factor um, around why we why we decided to do it this way as well. Okay, um, so on the sales side, uh, besides this funnel, how are you working on uh, training them? And how are you ongoing training uh, more in particular than uh, the new training? Yeah, um, so it's a, it's a good question. To be entirely transparent, we're actually hiring for somebody to come in and train and enable, so sales trainer and enablement. Uh, the reason we're doing that is because we recognize that across our management team, we could individually allocate time and resources towards that continuous training, but it is in the best interest of everyone involved to have somebody dedicated to that specialized skill. So I think you'll notice, based on everything that I've shared, thus far that we believe in specialization of skills. You have the ADR, the BDR, and ISR, and we want our management team to be focused on selling uh, and coaching um, more than anything else. So uh, as it stands thus far over the last two years, a lot of that training has been done by me, my VP, uh, the other managers that I work with, to make sure that there is continuous training both on the product front. So we work very closely with product management and product marketing to make sure that we have sort of the tactical skill set um, and knowledge to be able to go out and have conversations around competitive objection handling, how the industry has progressed, et cetera. And then from a sales skills and acumen perspective, um, that's, that's where we as management come in. So we do a lot of live coaching on calls. Um, we do opportunity coaching and review. So going through and applying medic in our case, uh, to see where opportunities shake out, what potential weaknesses are and where we can, uh, create kind of next steps to progress something. Um, but it's really something that we've individually taken on and hope to build out a stronger training and enablement program so that there is that continuous learning. But with a draft and develop team, we say that the will is very strong and the skill is where we need to focus our resources to hone those sales skills over time. Excellent. And how do you have the team set up, the account executives? Are they by territory or are they just everybody's uh, round robin? So we have two segments. We have a, a small business, which is zero to 100 employees, and then a mid-market uh, team, which is 101, we'll say, to, to 2,000 employees is really where they focus their time. Um, 
on each of those teams, we've divvied up our database. Um, we've actually ranked it in score by signals that look like customers that we have. So we use a number of different data mining tools, for lack of a better term, or business intelligence tools to help us identify who looks in our database most like our existing customer set or people that we've had good conversations with and uh, rank them essentially, giving them a score zero to 100, and then try to, as evenly as possible, distribute those across the 14 reps that we have, taking into consideration things like do they have the equal number of people or accounts rather in different geographic uh, territories or areas so that nobody is spending all of their time necessarily on EMEA uh, while the other person has, you know, 80% of their territory in San Francisco. Um, so we've tried to, as I'm sure you can pick up, make it as even as humanly possible given the data that we have in front of us. Is that all manually done? Um, no. So we do rely heavily on a couple of different vendors. Um, we've even changed a couple of vendors and, and built some customized functionality out with some of the vendors that we currently use, uh, but, but definitely outsourced a, a good deal of that. you mind sharing who, who you're using now? Yeah, absolutely. So we rely heavily on a company called DataFox. Um, who's really good in terms of uh, surfacing signals um, that are important to us. Um, so again, I mentioned the funding side of things or who is hiring those kinds of things, as well as some of the firmographic information. Okay, great. And so what have been some of your biggest challenges in growing your team to this size? I think some of the biggest challenges are around moving from a, a series B to a series C company. You start to notice uh, more process in place and you start to rely as a management team more heavily on that process and the data to make decisions uh, because at that point you're trying to prove greater repeatability uh, across the team. So I think one of the challenges I personally have had is encouraging the reps to adopt process and understand the why behind the process. Um, I definitely think that's one of them. The other one is something we're, we're actively trying to address, which is just bandwidth uh, in terms of management. Um, so, you know, wanting to be able to train continuously your reps um, while also managing some of the day-to-day um, -day activities, one-on-ones, operational side of things, um, cross-departmental meetings. Uh, so between those two things, uh, I'd say those are, those are my greatest challenges right now. I think the, the later of them were, is a big challenge for most most of the sales leaders is where to spend your time. Exactly. Great. Well, Pia, this has been an amazing conversation. I uh, really learned a lot, and I think uh, our guests uh, also. Uh, is there a way for them to reach out to you? 
Yeah, I think probably the best way is via LinkedIn. I tend to be fairly responsive. I think I joke with my friends that LinkedIn is my form of social media since I got rid of Facebook about eight years ago. So um, LinkedIn is definitely the best. Uh, or of course, my email is uh, first.last at threatstack.com if you want to reach me that way as well. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Pia, uh, for joining us. Thanks, Adam. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. To contact Adam about consulting services or speaking engagements, visit StartupSalesPodcast.com or email StartupSalesPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, let's finish things off with the last, uh, the final five. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite sales or leadership book? Ooh. Grit uh, by Angela Duckworth. I learned a great deal from that book. Highly recommend. Okay, great. Do you have someone that you follow or read for sales and leadership advice? Um, it's pretty crowdsourced at this point, uh, but I do subscribe to Jill Conrath and Trish Bertuzzi pretty heavily. Um, so I'd say those two. Okay. And are you available 24-7, or do you have strict uh, personal time boundaries? <laughs> um, I'm pretty much available 24-7. I'm up around 4.30. Uh, my reps do wow. know if they reach out to me after 9, the likelihood that I'm asleep is high, but I'll probably wake up in the middle of the night and respond to them then. <laughs> okay. 4.30 is very early. It's a little aggressively early, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite tool used for sales? I, you know, have to say DataFox. Um, I wish that I'd had a lot of that information. Actually, I'm going to take that back immediately. LinkedIn Sales Nav is such a game changer. <laughs> okay. LinkedIn Sales Nav. And your second favorite is DataFox. DataFox. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> Good. All right. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders, CEOs, and sales leaders out there? Ooh, um, my advice would be stay strong. Uh, it can be it can be an absolute grind, but the risk is worth the reward if only in experience alone. Um, stick with it. Stick with it and stay strong. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Adam.